For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. I've come across people who will privately tell me that there needs to be change and so on. But no one wants to be part of that change. Nobody wants to stick their neck out. Nobody wants to uh, go out there and say, hey, I, as a school, school principal, as an educator, um, as an official in the government, I think DEI training sessions are garbage. Here in Canada, um, there's a term that keeps coming up over and over again. There's a culture of fear, culture of fear. I keep hearing that over and over again. And I'm, I'm actually very tired of hearing that term. I think it's a culture of cowardice. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Rupa Supermania. Rupa, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brendan. It's great to be back. It's wonderful to have you back on. Um, and of course, I want to talk to you about Canada. Canada is where you're based, where you write, where you podcast, where you do everything you can to hold back the tidal wave of insanity that we're all experiencing these days. So I've got a lot of questions to ask you about the things you've been writing and the things you've been saying. And I want to kick off just by asking how Canada might be changing, because the last time I had you on the pod, we had a really good discussion about the Canadian truckers uprising, which listeners will remember even though I'm sure some people would like to memory hole it. And this was, of course, a huge working class revolt against Justin Trudeau's regime, Justin Trudeau's government, which was trying to um, cajole truck drivers into submitting themselves to uh, COVID interventions that they didn't want to have. There was a huge fallout. Listeners will remember that the Trudeau government used extreme authoritarianism against the truckers. They were widely demonized in the media. And I just wanted to to kick things off on where Canada is at right now. I wanted to ask you what impact you think that event had. Did it have a lasting impact on how people view the government there? Did it have what did it have a positive impact? What's the aftermath of that moment like in Canada? Um, yeah, uh, Brennan, um, I mean, that's a great question, Some, a question that I've been thinking about uh, quite a bit uh, in, in recent weeks as well. Um, it's um, it, it had an impact in the sense that finally Canadians uh, who, you know, who are seen as being very compliant people, they're very compliant, they, they follow all the rules and um, and they don't are not seen as fighting back in the same way as their neighbors to the south. Uh, for the first time, they, um, you know, made their voices heard and they protested uh, uh, and uh, for three weeks in in the bitter cold. And uh, and and it was uh, an event that caught everybody's attention across the world. So this was very unusual for Canada. I'd like to think that there was some kind of an awakening where people uh, were just tired of government overreach and that they were, they were not going to put up with that any longer. But, you know, I tend to be a little pessimistic uh, because 
there's a lot of government overreach that's been happening since the protests. So the Trudeau government uh, passed this uh, very, very uh, problematic bill called Bill C-11, which essentially tells uh, streaming platforms like YouTube and uh, Netflix uh, to, um, to include Canadian content. Now, nobody can define what Canadian content is. And what this ends up doing is that um, it's now become law. It became law in March. And what this ends up doing is that it basically, um, uh, you know, deprioritizes um, uh, Canadian content in the rest of the world because this is how the algorithms work. And uh, and 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 so it's uh, you know it's been seen by a, a range of uh, content creators, um, you know, people who depend on streaming their videos, their content on YouTube and their their revenue stream depends on that. Uh, many of them have threatened to move to the U.S. because uh, because they can't uh, earn a living here as as a result. So uh, there and there's another uh, problematic bill which also became law called Bill uh, Bill C-18, uh, where the Trudeau government uh, wanted to pitch this battle between um, the government and the people and, and against big tech. Now there are plenty of problems with big tech. You and I probably would agree, and you know that there are lots of problems there. But uh, what uh, what's ended up happening here is that Facebook, uh, that's Meta and Google have basically said, look, we're not going to carry uh, Canadian news. It won't be uh, visible on these platforms like Instagram. Um, and 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 the government has said, well, we're doing this because big tech should pay their fair share. Now, I don't know what the fair share is. Nobody can define that once again, just like no one can define what Canadian content is. So um, these are instances of government overreach, which has faced some pushback, yes, from the Bill C-11 actually uh, faced considerable pushback, even from the likes of Margaret Atwood. Now, I'm not, I don't think Margaret Margaret Atwood was necessarily a fan of the truckers' protest, and I don't necessarily see her as a conservative. Um, I think she's very much a liberal, and so there was a lot of pushback, even from liberal circles. But all, all told, I mean, this, th- these things ended up becoming law. And so there was more government overreach. Um, and, and, and what is also problematic is that any time there's any kind of dissent here in Canada, that um, anything where you're pushing against the official narrative, um, uh, you know, people like Trudeau will immediately say that's in misinformation, disinformation, and they uh, smear you with those labels. And again, there's very little pushback from the legacy media. In fact, the people who are outraged by all of these labels are pe- those of us who are independent. So to to you know to conclude, really, since the truckers' protest, uh, which was this big event that to me represented some kind of an awakening of the Canadian mind and spirit, um, uh, and that they were done with uh, all, you know government overreach and censorship and you name it, we've had more of that since. And um, and there was a public uh, uh, inquiry into the Emergencies Act that Justin Trudeau invoked um, to get rid of the protesters back in February of 2022. Uh, this inquiry went on for about six weeks or so. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was a lot of hope that this inquiry would shed a light on, again, once again, on government overreach and why it was so hugely problematic to invoke the Emergencies Act. Uh, but 
the judge uh, presiding over the inquiry essentially concluded that misinformation and disinformation are very problematic. So we need more of the government uh, involved in this, not less. Uh, so it was extremely, extremely disappointing. Um, uh, but, you know, there's been all kinds of pushback uh, from uh, from sections of society that I would, you know, that have come together uh, in, in on certain issues. Like, for example, the um, teaching of gender ideology in schools across Canada. Uh, there have been uh, lots of protests here over the last month and a half or so. I've been to one. I went to one big one here in Ottawa. And what was striking about it was the fact that um, conservative Muslim parents and conservative Christians um, and and anybody who opposes gender ideology all got together and and were um, you know uh, you know said leave our kids alone and essentially um, you know the Muslim constituency was a safe one for for Justin Trudeau and the uh, uh, NDP which is. Uh, part of the ruling ruling coalition. I mean, Justin Trudeau is basically in power because, um, you know, of Jagmeet Singh of the NDP, who, you know, the left of center party, which is basically propping his government up. And, um, and, and, and you know, the Muslim constituency, Muslim Canadian constituency in Canada was the same one for them. But that's not clear anymore because those guys are saying, uh, pardon my language, Fuck Trudeau. So, um, and that's quite uh, it's that that's quite interesting to see. And um, and 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 I've interviewed some some folks from the Muslim Canadian community, and they said you can't take our vote for granted. We we're not we're not homophobic. We're not against gay rights. We're not against all of those things. But just don't uh, try to indoctrinate our kids with pronouns and uh, and 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 suggesting that uh, they go on puberty blockers and that sort of thing. And par- we as parents have a right to be involved in our kids' lives, which seems rather fair and reasonable. So that's that's the state of Canada right now. Uh, and of course, Justin Trudeau got um, uh, is getting divorced. That was in the news last week. Um, uh, you know, I'm not quite sure how that's going to play politically, but uh, I mean, Ottawa's worst kept secret was that uh, Trudeau and his wife had been living apart for years. So everybody knew that, but it's now become official. Um, and so, uh, you know, and, and and at the same time, his government keeps doubling down on any criticism of the government as misinformation and disinformation. So it's, um, it you know, we've, we've had very little pushback against those things. And, um, um, the, the good thing, I suppose, uh, in all of this is that the opposition conservative party, the Tories, uh, are actually polling quite well in the polls. So uh, and and so that gives me a sliver of hope that there's going to be finally some kind of uh, uh, credible opposition, finally, because for the last couple of elections, um, that hasn't been the case. Um, they've The conservative party was essentially ineffective and they couldn't do much there. But but then I, I'm, I'm a little you know, hesitant to come to any kind of conclusion because as long as you have the NDP supporting Justin Trudeau, you know, they'll probably, uh, they could probably put together the numbers and they could probably come up with the numbers to stay in power even longer. And if that were to be the case, then that's going to be truly devastating for Canada. Um, I think that's a, that's a really useful outline about where Canada stands at the moment and um, the ups and downs, I guess, that you guys have experienced in the wake of the Canadian truckers' protest. I mean, the thing that I really appreciated about the truckers' protest, aside from the fact that I always like to see working class people standing up for themselves and their rights 
against a government that doesn't care very much about them. The other thing was that it, it did break the spell of Trudeauism for, I think, some people around the world. I mean, I was never under that spell. You were never, never under that spell either. But some people around the world were, of course. He was seen as the wokest of the woke, the nicest PM, a really swell guy. And then suddenly here he was, as you say, using the Emergency Act, an extraordinarily authoritarian piece of legislation against actual Canadian citizens who were just making their voices heard. Um, and of course, we had the extraordinary incident, which I think will have long-term consequences of um, an online platform refusing to give some of the funds that people raised for the truckers, refusing to give those funds to the truckers. And we've seen echoes of that in the woke banking controversy here in the UK, where we've had Nigel Farage and others being debanked or people being deprived their PayPal funds because they're not politically correct enough. So the, the, the kind of um, the long lasting impact of those decisions, too, I think is very important. But you, it, it's interesting to me who is rising up against Trudeau. So we had the Canadian truckers and you mentioned there a group of people I want to ask you about, which is um, Muslim parents, Christian parents. Uh, you wrote a piece recently about uh, these groups in society who are agitating against the teaching of gender ideology in schools in Canada. I find this new movement really interesting. We've seen it. I wrote about it in Newsweek uh, in relation to the United States because there's a similar development there where we've seen Latino parents, Armenian parents, Muslim parents, Christians gathering outside schools and saying, leave our kids alone. And it kind of blew up in England, in fact, in Birmingham here in 2019, when large numbers of Muslim parents gathered outside of school and said, you know, ditch the pride propaganda, essentially. Um, there's something positive in that movement, isn't there? In the sense that it really is, firstly, it's embarrassing for leaders like Trudeau that the minority groups they so paternalistically claim to represent are now fighting back. But also these protests are cutting to the heart of one of the key ideologies in the woke movement, I guess, which is the gender ideology. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this one protest that I was at here in Ottawa back in June, um, what was striking about it was immediately uh, was the fact that the counter protesters uh, really seem to represent um, the, you know, the ethnic diversity of uh, Canada. Right. Uh, you had uh, uh, Muslims, you had um, African Canadians, you had um, conservative Christians, you had uh, South Asians, you had everybody from every walk of life, the counter protesters, um, um, on the other hand, uh, were, um, um, were, were just mostly white. I mean, that's, that's, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, the truckers' protest was also mostly white. This Canada is mostly is a mostly white country, but the counter protesters appear to be, uh, in my in my opinion, very discomforted by by the fact that the protesters um, weren't these usual people, like uh, you know that that the that, that they would expect uh, the like people from the truckers' protest. They're not far right extremists as they they're usually referred to but in fact included uh many people of color including uh socially conservative muslims and of course you know as you said this doesn't fit into this progressive ideology um and you know it almost was like there was a sense of betrayal you should have seen the meltdown on social media uh that oh we've stood up for the muslim community but they you know when we need them they're not standing up for us on this issue um 
you know, so it almost seemed to suggest that the the the, the, the prize for supporting these minority causes um, was that, you know, those they supported should support them in return on the social issues that they cared about. But having said that, my problem is that when you bring religion into this, my concern is that it, uh, you know, there's a danger that of, you know, there's a risk that um, that there's going to be a regression on uh, some of these things. Uh, uh, on, 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 we built this consensus on things like gay rights. Uh, if you're if you're a Muslim, um, conservative Muslim, immigrating to Canada, you know this is what this, the, you know that there are gay people in Canada. Gay marriage is legal, uh, you know, and it's it's a fairly uh, liberal country when it comes to one's um, sexuality or you know and that sort of thing that that go against the teachings of um, the Quran or or go against Islamic doctrine, uh, and so they've had to accept that as a fait accompli. Uh, and so when when you're at the protest and when when you see religion being uh, invoked, um, like there were chants of Allahu Akbar or the Christians were saying Christ is king. Um, I mean, that's that's fine. I mean, that's their freedom of speech. I respect that completely. But I think that when you start bringing in religion into these kinds of movements, that's when I get a little concerned. And I, I think ge- the criticism against gender ideology can 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 happen without bringing in religion into the picture. I came from a low-income family that was, that was struggling. You see how hard life can get. GC became a part of my life because I don't want my family to fall back into that. I never thought education would take me this far. I'm still young. I still have a lot to do in my life and just want to get things done the way I want with a good education under me. I'm Stacy, and Grand Canyon University helped me find my purpose. Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to remind you that you can still buy my book. It's called A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable, and I've really been blown away by the response to it from readers, reviewers, Spike supporters. People really like this book, and I think you're going to like it too. It covers all the insanities of our time, from climate change hysteria through to COVID authoritarianism, through to the trans ideology, and it basically makes the case for more freedom of speech, more debate, and more heretical thinking to challenge the conformism of our times. So what are you waiting for? Go to Amazon right now and order my book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And now on with the show. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And it begs the question of where the more um, reasoned uh, political voices are saying, you know, uh, this gender ideology is cranky and dangerous and it's confusing children. And in fact, it's harmful to the ideal of gay rights in the sense that it is, you know, often putting young lesbians, young gay men onto a conveyor belt of hormonal intervention and supposed medical correction. I mean, what we want, I think, are more of those kinds of voices making the case against trans ideology. I think in the absence of them, or given the weakness of them, there is a gap that is now being filled by uh, religious voices who are saying, look, you've gone too far, leave our kids alone. But in relation to um, just sticking on this theme for one more moment, I want to ask you about what what does this tell us a broader story? Because one of the real issues I have with a contemporary identitarian left or the woke left or the kind of politics that is really 
typified by Trudeau and, and many others in, in the Anglo-American Western world. Um, one of the great problems I have with them is precisely the thing you mentioned there, which is this sense of ownership that they have of my minority communities, which means that I, I do think the clash between minority parents, whether they're Muslims or Latinos or African-Americans or Jamaicans, whatever they might be, the clash between them and largely white liberals um, who thought that they owned them and who thought that these minority groups owed them a favour because we've been so nice to you, we've looked after you, we've we've pursued your interests and now you owe us your obedience is essentially what they're saying. The breaking down of that, do you think that holds out the possibility for a newer kind of politics, which is one that is based less on the racial idea and more on the idea that people should be free to think how they want on the big issues of the day? Well, I mean, that's a great question and it's a very important one. And uh, I, th- the hope is that that's the direction which we're going. But you see, the hypocrisy, um, you know, runs the other way too, right? Uh, Muslim Canadians uh, or any other minority group for that matter, um, you know, will happily accept uh, progressive support uh, in combating what they perceive to be Islamophobia, for example. Um, and um, as long as that remains... Uh, and I don't see that going anywhere. Um, I, I'm just not sure. I'm, I, 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 you know, I, I, Islamophobia, combating Islamophobia is a pretty big, you know, it's it's a it's a big enterprise here in Canada, and I'm sure it is in the UK as well. I mean, there's lots of money to be made. Everything is considered to be Islamophobic. I still don't know what that even means. I mean, um, you know, criticizing the Bible does not make me. Um, doesn't make me a bigot, but apparently if you uh, criticize the tenets of Islam, that makes you a bigot. So I, um, I, I don't see, uh, for example, not to, I mean, not necessarily to single them out, but, you know, I don't necessarily see Muslim Canadians saying, look, I think this Islamophobia thing has just gone too far and, you know, we reject that and everybody should be uh, allowed to, uh, you know, express themselves freely, even when it comes to our religion. I just don't see such calls from the Muslim community or for that matter, from any other minority group. So um, are we just going to get get away from ident- identitarian politics as a result of this? I do think that this is a turning point, I think, when it comes to an important component of the culture war. But as a as you know, looking into the future, I just I, I think this is just going to be replaced by something else. I think I think it'll just be replaced by some other uh, uh, minority cause, and uh, and 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 you know, and I, I don't see things changing all that much. Yeah, I guess it's one. Of, it's it's a good example of where there may be flashpoints and tensions in the strange contemporary coalitions that we have around the new ideologies. One of those coalitions being between white liberals and certain minority groups. There may be tensions of flashpoints there, but the question of whether it breaks down and is replaced by something more positive is a far larger political question. It's not the kind of thing that's likely to happen overnight or by accident. It will take a conscious promotion of a more um, equality-based, freedom-based politics. So I think watching these flashpoints is interesting, but expecting them to resolve every problem in society is probably going too far. I want to ask you just about just one more thing on Trudeau before we move on to a couple of other issues. Um, you mentioned there that he's getting divorced. I'm not particularly interested in politicians' private lives. They can do whatever they want, marry, divorce, be straight, be gay. That's their own business. Um, 
but he is a he he does strike me as a politician who lives off his personal morality and image a lot. I mean, this is a guy who is very much um, about the image, you know, the image of, there's that famous image of him jogging, for example, or wearing politically correct socks and ties. And then you have this excruciating sight of liberal commentators in the UK and Europe and America gushing over him and his uh, political clothing and his um, write-on messaging and his uh, brilliant virtue signalling, which they think he does better than any other politician. Is there a danger for Trudeau in, in wrapping his prime ministership and his political journey up in his own personhood and who he is as an individual and the fact that he is good and write-on and right-thinking and so on? Is there a danger for him in that, that he, he comes to be seen not as a political creature, but as a a, a kind of a, a creature of identity politics, I guess, who's more about signaling correct messages rather than making an, a positive impact on Canadian people's lives. How do Canadians view him politically in the broader sense? Um, so I um, here here's my impression of uh, Trudeau. Um, I I don't think he's stupid. A lot of uh, conservatives, for example, uh, many of his critics who have this pathological hate for him um, will say that he's stupid, but he's not stupid. I've actually seen him in, um, in you know, live at this public inquiry that I mentioned to you early on into the Emergencies Act, and he was uh, the the final witness um, of at the inquiry where he uh, presented himself for nearly four hours or something like that, uh, where, you know, he was asked questions, he was grilled, he was, um, uh, you know, in, into why he invoked the Emergencies Act. And I have to say, I was very impressed. I mean, he, um, I, I don't think, I mean, you can coach a person to some extent, but not, not, you know, he was also thinking on his feet. At one point, I remember him correcting one of the lawyers. Uh, and so he's, he's actually quite impressive. And this is the first time I've actually seen him, uh, you know, up close. Um, so he's not stupid. He certainly, um, you know, he's a savvy politician. There's no question about that. And he certainly uses um, his, his image. He's, you know, he's fit, he's uh, tall, he's reasonably good looking, he's well dressed. So he's certainly used that to his advantage um, um, uh, throughout. Uh, and I, I do think that he he um, will always be associated with, uh, with, with identity politics. There's, there's no getting around it. Be, you know, uh, he he really seems to care about the trans issue. Like that's that's what animates his government more than anything. Uh, you know, it's it, it it's beyond me. I I just don't understand that. And everything is trans related. Uh, and 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 so, I I don't I don't know what's going on there. But uh, he's he at least. The image of Trudeau that I've had over the last few months is that um, he's doubled down on identity politics in a very big way, um, um, but mostly towards the trans stuff. Uh, there was this one interview um, where he, a Muslim parent, asked him about gender ideology and it basically asked him, like, do you understand why we're protesting? And he said, no, this is, you know, you're mistaken, my friend. It's misinformation, disinformation coming from the American far right. Uh, and he was basically telling this guy that he knows better than 
you know, the Muslim community and that um, that he's just being misled. And there's no such thing happening in Canada. This is all a figment of your imagination that's being fed to you, or this is propaganda fed to you by uh, by uh, by the American far right. So I'm not quite sure what what he's doing right now, like in terms of identity politics. He's certainly doubling down on the trans stuff, maybe because that's been in the news. That's the only thing that's been in the news recently. But, uh, you know, his legacy is going to be that of a of, of a prime minister who I think really took Canada back in a, in a pretty significant way on a range of different issues. Uh, I mean, we're not even talking about the economy, you know, which is its own thing. And uh, uh, this skyrocketing, uh, the cost of living has gone up. People, uh, every day there's a story of people who can't afford to pay their mortgage payments uh, because interest rates have gone up and there are all of these distress sales. Uh, uh, you know, yes, the economy is resilient, but people are not doing well. And uh, and you can see that. I live in the heart of Ottawa and uh, homelessness has gone up. Drug use has gone up. Um, crime has gone up. It's, uh, you know, these are these are issues that nobody, that no one in his government really wants to address. Uh, and they just keep passing the buck, but they keep, keep doubling down on gender ideology, uh, which just is complete, you know, it's just perplexing. Uh, but yeah, he will be seen as, a, as, 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 you know, as, as someone who, uh, in my opinion, really, um, you know, uh, put Canada on on a very uh, illiberal, um, you know, and dark path, and uh, it's going to take a lot for uh, for you know for, for this country to come out of that. Um, and uh, and it doesn't help, of course, that uh, in the U.S. you have Joe Biden, um, you know, who is you know equally, if not more. Um, you know, uh, just um, doubling down on all of this stuff. So, you know, they keep rubbing off against each other and really keep reinforcing this. So it's it's maddening. But yeah, it's interesting that you say, you know, we're not talking about the economy. And it's so true, especially for outsiders looking at a country like Canada. It was very similar with New Zealand under when Jacinda Ardern was prime minister people from outside would look at those countries and, uh, well, liberals would look at those countries and say, oh, Trudeau is so wonderful. Look what he's doing for trans rights and look how nice he is to a uh, Muslim immigrant family who just turned up. And then they would look at New Zealand and say, Jacinda Ardern, she's got the perfect female touch. She's a very caring politician. And there would be zero discussion about issues to do with the economy or people's uh, sense of being in control of their lives or their political fate, the kind of things that politics should be about. And I guess that's another potential flashpoint as we all head into a cost of living crisis is how much longer can we sustain the kind of decadence of woke ideologies at a time when yeah. people are wondering how to make ends meet. So that's that will be an interesting clash too, I think. Um, I want to come on to a story that you wrote for the Free Press, which is a really extraordinary story. And it touches upon a lot of the things we've just been talking about, a lot of the things that people like you and me are interested in, in terms of the new authoritarianism, the new politics of racialism, the new politics of accusation and demonization. All of this is wrapped up in this extraordinary and tragic tale concerning an educator in Canada called Richard Bilkstow. So why don't you just tell us the story? And then I've got a, a few questions as well that I want to ask you about it. 
Um, yeah, thank, thanks, Brendan. And yeah, this was uh, probably one of the most uh, difficult things I've had to work on. Um, and, um, and you know, it was it was very painful and it, um, you know, it touched a chord with me. And uh, anyway, the story is about um, the school principal. Uh, he was uh, a beloved uh, educator. His passion was always education, Richard Bilkstow. Um, he he loved teaching and mentoring. Uh, he dedicated his life to teaching uh, kids and young adults who came from underprivileged backgrounds. He taught some of the most marginalized people out there, um, and um, and and you know, not all of us get to live our dreams, but he actually got to live his dream as an educator. And um, he, um, you know, he was so admired by his school uh, t- uh, students and uh, admired by his peers. Uh, one person that I interviewed said, you know, I was, you know, we were just walking in downtown Toronto and, uh, you know, just people would just randomly come up to him and say, um, um, you know, it's, it's so great to run into you. You were one of the best teachers or the one, one of the best principals I've ever had. That's how much uh, he, he was, he was loved. And, um, um, and he, you know, he had a very long and distinguished career. He retired in 2019, uh, but he loved teaching so much. He uh, wanted to continue. Uh, uh, he wanted to be engaged um, in, in that community. So he was hired as a supply uh, principal as and when he was needed. Uh, and not because he needed the money, uh, because he just really cared about education. Um, and uh, and so, so he started, um, uh, he was hired as a principal at this adult learning center uh, in Toronto and, um, and in 2020. And then they liked him so much that they just wanted him back for the fall of 2021. And and he agreed and uh, things were going just fine, uh, you know, despite the pandemic, the lockdowns, the restrictions, school closures, and so on. But his life began to fall apart uh, when there was a series of uh, diversity, equity, and uh, inclusion uh, training sessions um, that the Toronto District School Board, which is the country's largest school board, um, they, um, uh, you know, they they had organized this in conjunction with this well-known um, uh, DEI consultancy uh, firm in Toronto called the Kojo Institute. And they were hired to um, train uh, senior administrators in the Toronto District School Board. So that included principals, superintendents, vice principals, other senior officials, and so on. Richard went to it not because he he had to, but he was always looking for, uh, you know, piecing. This is all piecing uh, together um, who he was as a person, based on many conversations I had with uh, friends and family. He went there because he was always looking to improve himself. He was always looking for uh, to improve himself professionally um, that would help him do his job better. And, uh, and, and, you know, the first session, which was April uh, 19th, uh, went without any incident. Uh, we don't quite know what was being said in that session. I don't, don't have the audio recordings for that session. But things began to really, you know, uh, turn for him on the, the second session, April 26th of 2021, where the CEO of this institute, Kiki Oja Thompson, um, uh, an African Canadian woman, um, uh, you know, made these claims in the session saying that Canada is a bastion of white supremacy and that the racism that uh, black people in Canada experience uh, uh, in Canada is far worse than anything in the U.S. 
Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, Richard got up and he said, sorry, I just want to just say this, but I just want to clarify. Uh, I want, I want to push, basically he was pushing against her claim. And, uh, and he said, look, I've taught some of the most underprivileged school, uh, kids in some very, uh, uh, marginalized communities, uh, that includes teaching African, uh, American students. He, he had, he taught him in, in Buffalo, New York. He taught in the U S in, you know, in the inner cities. And, uh, and he said that, uh, that things are not so bad here. We have a socialized healthcare system. We have, um, public school system, which generally, works well everybody has access to it it's and it's it's very different from the US um and and so he he says that and she and Kiki Oja Thompson then reacts angrily um accusing him of white privilege um and uh and saying that uh, basically that he had no he has he had no right to push against her claim uh because as a white person he'll never understand what it means to be um a a black person in canada and uh you know all he was doing was gently push politely uh, uh and i provided the audio recordings of this um of this interaction and and more so you know listeners can in you know when they read the piece they'll see the audio recordings and there are more audio recordings which were not embedded in our story which is uh part of uh what in my tweet thread so they can always go to my twitter account and find those uh, and uh, and for the rest of the session, she just kept uh, picking on him, um, uh, kept referring to him as a resistor. At one point, she refers to him as a weed. Uh, and she said, you know, I, I didn't know that my luck would uh turn out the way it did but boy i'm so glad that uh that this this happened and because i can show you exactly what a resistor is and what it looks like and what it sounds like and so he 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 just you know she was just dehumanizing him uh the whole way and just kept uh, uh bullying him and uh and and calling him uh, re- referring to him as a white supremacist and um, whiteness, that's another uh, term uh, uh, that he was referred to as whiteness, not even by his name. Um, he felt incredibly humiliated and traumatized, and but he went back for the third session where she continued doing, doing this for about an hour and a half or so. Uh, and here, what 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 was different was she invites the audience in the Zoom session. There were about two hundred people uh, uh, who are part of this training session. She invites them to refer to last week's session, refer to what happened last week. Uh, you know, what does a resistor look like? What does it sound like? What um, what are its tactics? Um, and um, you know, so not even like referring to him as a person, you know, he's uh, just referred to as a thing at this point. And what was uh, really hard to listen to was were all of these people that he's worked with, um, you know, as an educator, they all pile on him. They're all piling on him. They're uh, uh, calling him whiteness. They're, uh, they're, um, um, uh, you know, uh, reinforcing, uh, the points that, uh, that she's been making that, uh, that essentially calling him a white supremacist and a racist. 
and uh, and you know he was just absolutely devastated uh, um, a- after this session. There was a fourth session that he didn't go to uh, because he applied for sick leave, and he went on sick leave for three months because of the uh, devastating uh, um, impact it had on him uh, mentally. Um, and uh, he filed a workplace. Uh, harassment complaint with the uh, with the Workplace Safety Insurance Board, which investigated the matter and actually sided with him and said that the school board um, uh, owed him uh, money for the three months that he was on sick leave, and uh, so that 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 should have given him a ray of hope. Uh, that should have given him, um, you know, some comfort knowing that things were, you know, that at least with the with this Workplace Safety Insurance Board, they were on his side. He files a lawsuit um, earlier this year, and um, and you know, meanwhile he's been from from the from the training session to uh, to when he died. Uh, all of the contracts, uh, Brendan, that he had with the TDSB, and um, you know, all of the teaching contracts uh, just um, uh, were canceled. They uh, were they were, they were um, uh, you know for, for a substantial amount of money. But this is really not about money. It was about it's about the principle. Um, I. Reached out to school officials, asking them why they reneged, why, uh, why, why they didn't, um, you know, why, why they just canceled his contract. I've not heard from anyone to this day, um, and uh, so his contracts were just canceled with no explanation, and he just became. Um, you know, everybody just distanced themselves from him. Uh, this is a man who spent 24, 25 years dedicating his life to teaching. He had dedicated his life to teaching and uh, suddenly uh, not, you know, no one in, the, in that community, uh, uh, you know, stood up for him in the end. And uh, not a single person in that Zoom session pushed back against the bullying. Uh, in fact, they, they all became part of it um, and, uh, and and piled on him. So, um, you know, I, I tried to piece together what must have happened to him the weeks before his death. One of the things that he was really terrified about um, was the, uh, and this is based on conversations with his friends and family, and this kept coming up over and over again. He was really terrified that his lawsuit would be discovered by the legacy media. Uh, specifically one particular publication, the Toronto Star. And uh, uh, and I think he he had heard that a journalist from this publication had discovered the lawsuit and was going to write about it. He was absolutely terrified because he was uh, uh, terrified of being re-traumatized. And he didn't want to go through that again. And um, another publication got uh, heard of the lawsuit and they wrote about it favorably. So he was pleased with that apparently. But he was—he uh, knew that this other publication was still working on the story, and um, and and he was just—he uh, hadn't been sleeping. Uh, he, uh, you know, he was just not the same person that um, that that he once used to be, um, and uh, he was just emotionally exhausted. His family tells me that you know, I think the fact that their last name is so unique, um, and and that. Richard feared that you know their that name that name would be dragged through the mud. Knowing what they knew about their uh, about Richard, uh, this is the kind of thing that he was not prepared to live with. Um, and uh, I, you know, the, the, it it it, emo- it eventually got to him, and he killed himself uh, July thirteenth, uh, um, and uh, and that was uh, um, uh, basically what happened to him. But the story of his bullying and 
um, the the pylon that he experienced, the education community that he that that once praised him, you know, as he was retiring, those very same people let him down, um, and uh, and that it's most tragic. If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. It, it's an extraordinary story. And when one reads your piece, it really does bring home um, the deranged nature of some of this new politics. I mean, it's it, it, there's one quote that leapt out at me in, in relation to one of the DEI sessions that he took part in where the host of the session said to him, you and your whiteness think you can tell me what's going on. And it was, as you say, it's that kind of dehumanization that he experienced simply for asking a very polite question about whether Canada really is one of the most racist countries in the world. And then you describe really well, as you've just done there too, um, the Salem-like atmosphere that swirled around him as a consequence of him asking this question, where people who were his colleagues or his friends or uh, his contacts for a period of time suddenly turned on him, pointed the finger at him, uh, basically followed the instruction to treat him as a resistor slash witch slash, you know, uh, unacceptable dissident. Um and and just started to take part in that destruction of a man for daring to have an opinion. And then, as you say, it ends in the most awful way imaginable because he feels he cannot take any more of this kind of pressure or this kind of demonization. And then he took his own life in July. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, I, everyone should read the piece. It's, it's very powerful and um, shocking. I wanted to ask you, has there been fallout from this in Canada? Has there been any form of self-reflection, not only amongst the newspapers that you mentioned, uh, the Toronto Star or wh whoever, but amongst the kind of broader woke establishment, I guess, who very often turn a blind eye to this kind of um, demonization or in fact take part in it? Has there been any fallout? Has there been any kind of... Um, reflection on the kind of politics that they've helped to promote that something so obscene could happen as a result of a DEI witch hunt essentially uh I'm afraid no I, I think I think this institute um the the Toronto District School Board for example their social media feed they have turned off the replies um uh, these brave courageous educators shaping young minds of today um, can't even um, face up to, uh, you know, can't, can't, can't even, you know, defend themselves on social media, on Twitter, um, and, or even just answer some basic questions. Um, 
Kojo Institute uh, protected their tweets until recently, um, and I don't know wh- what uh, what they're doing right now. Um, there was a protest of sorts a few days ago by the parents of black kids or something. It's an organization where the the, the CEO of this institute sits on that their board, and uh, and they came out uh, defending her and that uh, and that this was all that we were all a bunch of racists for uh, talking about Richard Bilkstow. Um, so this institute has a lot of um, influence. They, they're uh, backed by some very powerful people uh, in the in the government, in the provincial government, in the federal government. Um, uh, they, they've had, um, you know, all kinds of contracts with um, places like the CDC and H&M and a whole bunch of different, um, you know, well-known organizations. They have, they have lots of money. They have a lot of clout. They have a lot of influence. They have a lot of powerful backers. So they're going to try to do, in my opinion, they're going to try to do as much as they can to um, to to try to, uh, you know, uh, set the terms of this conversation. Uh, and you you and you know what that would be like, uh, what that would look like. Um, we've not now the um, the the minister in charge of education in in the province of Ontario, where, where I live, where all of this happened, has uh, promised an inquiry into the uh, into his death. The Toronto District School Board has uh, has uh, announced an inquiry into uh, what happened at the DEI session, um, and so those are those are good signs. But I'm you know I don't know how 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 uh, fair and objective these people are going to be. Um, but having said that, you know I have seen at least you know based on what I've seen on social media, um, I've seen very little. Uh, reaction from people in the legacy media, for example. Um, a lot of people shared this obscene article in the Toronto Star uh, last week, uh, which was, again, um, trying to disparage him. And this is exactly what he was terrified about. He was very, very... Uh, and this this journalist got a hold of the recordings, but did not make them public. And you have to wonder why, uh, you know, if what you're claiming uh, to be true, you should you should let let the public listen to it. And which is what I did. I but I did not have the recordings, uh, the original recordings. I recorded it while the lawyer played it for me. So I and I got big portions of that. And and I um, and I was unable to get the original recordings for various reasons, but I felt it was important that everybody everybody sh- should listen to, uh, sh- should get, have an idea of who Kiki Oja Thompson is and what diversity inclusion training sessions look like um, and the pushback uh, and Richard's uh, polite uh, pushback against her claim. And, you know, and if when I first listened to it, I was horrified. You know, I had this uneasy feeling. It was just absolutely shocking. And I wanted everybody to hear that and, you know, and, and, and decide for themselves if they've, they found this uh, problematic. And um, so, so the fallout, I, I, I think, I mean, these, these uh, announcements of an inquiry into the, his death are good. It's a good first step, but um, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if I, you know, if, if more people out there are questioning DI sessions or are we once again speaking in an echo chamber here? That's always a concern that I have, but I'm hoping that even if people are not publicly uh, agreeing with 
with the story or I, I, I'm hoping that they, they're at least privately um, um, uh, saying that what happened was just uh, unconscionable and, uh, and this, this should never have happened. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, one thing I wanted to ask you uh, in relation to the kind of discussion we might have about this at some point, if the, if the media wakes up and takes an interest in these issues, um, in some ways the Richard Bilkstow tragedy is an extreme case because it, 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 it involved a man taking his life, which is uh, very extreme and, and incredibly tragic. Um, but outside of that, in, in I guess in, in, in the less extreme situations, DEI, diversity, equity and inclusion policies, still do play a very problematic role, don't they, in the academy, in workplaces and so on. And it very often is geared towards a form of racial shaming, especially against white people or whiteness. You know, people are seen as the embodiment of whiteness. That's all a white man is, a white person is, in the way that racists in the past would have seen a black person as just an embodiment of blackness and the deviance that they would have associated with blackness. You, you see a rehabilitation of those old racist ideas in a new language directed at a different group of people. So there is a kind of, um, this re-racialization of politics is really dangerous and destructive. And it strikes me that it's very interesting to me that no one on the left, even not many people on the traditional left, are speaking up about this, even though it seems clear to me that DEI has become one of the tools that, that bosses use in the workplace to divide and rule over people. Um, it's one of the ways in which people are reprimanded at work or excluded from work or no platformed from certain positions and certain jobs because they hold supposedly problematic views. It's become very obvious, very obviously a tool of the new elites to control ordinary people. And there's very little pushback. So we, we do need a broader discussion don't we? Even beyond this incredibly tragic case, we need a broader discussion about what DEI represents and why it's a problem. Absolutely. So here in Canada, I don't know how things are in the UK, but um, um, here in Canada, um, the there's a term that keeps coming up over and over again, um, um, given all of the stories that I've worked on recently, uh, including this one. There's a culture of fear, culture of fear. I keep hearing that over and over again. And I'm, I'm actually very tired of hearing that term. I think it's a culture of cowardice. I think people are just uh, not um, um, privately. I've come across I've come across people who will privately tell me, "Yeah, you know what what happened is uh, you know problematic, and I you know and it's it's tragic, and um, and you know there, there needs to be change and so on." But no one wants to be part of that change. Nobody wants to stick their neck out. Nobody wants to uh, go out there and say, "Hey, I, as a school school principal, as an educator, um, as an official in the government, I think DI." training sessions are garbage. I honestly think they're garbage. I came to this country uh, 25 years ago as, as, as a student, uh, and I lived in some of the smallest towns in, in, in Canada, uh, you know, where even most Canadians have not even been there. And that was my first exposure to Canada um, as, as a person of color before I went to the big city four years after uh, coming here. And there was no DEI training session. I, I didn't experience any racism. Sure, there are racists. There's, there are racists everywhere. Um, there are bigots everywhere. But uh, you know, it was it was 
an incredible experience for me. And so I, I don't understand why. I mean, it's a grift, right? That's what this is. People are making money off this. A Kojo Institute made 81,000 Canadian um, uh, for four sessions. That's that's a lot of money. Um, and uh, for just uh, spewing essentially garbage, um, you know, this this part part of the uh, part of the session, which I have not shared, which goes goes on this tirade about um, uh, anti-black racism. And it's just complete nonsense. Uh, I think at one point she says that, uh, you know, black people can never be racist. Then I'm thinking, Edie, I'm in, you know. And it, it doesn't occur to any of these educators to even like push push against that basic uh, factual error. Right. And and so um, there's a culture of cowardice. There's a culture of like, um, you know, where everyone is just too afraid of losing their jobs, their pensions, their um, their homes for speaking out. And there are consequences for sure for sticking your neck out. I mean, we, you and I have experienced that. And, uh, uh, you know, I myself have been subject to cancellations and bullying and that sort of thing. Um, and I'm not saying that everybody has to be like, be like us, but here in Canada, especially the, the, this, this people are just so afraid of speaking out. Something's got to change at some point because the status quo is not sustainable. Let me tell you one thing. Richard Bilkstow was not a conservative. He was very much a progressive. He, he was he was on the left. He, in fact, believed in all of these things. He believed in equity, he believed in diversity, inclusion, and he believed in DI training sessions. Um, so he, he, you know, ideologically, he was not that far removed from the DI facilitators way of thinking. But this this was uh, this was um, uh, a case where even if you're basically on their side, uh, uh, you, you know, it's all about 100 percent agreeing with that ideology. You cannot stray uh, away from that, uh, not even in the slightest bit, because then this, this is the kind of thing that ends up happening. The, the other thing I was thinking in relation to this was uh, you mentioned there that um, Richard was not a conservative. He was more of the progressive side. He was a bit of a uh, yeah. he was on the left and so on. I do think it's interesting that I, I think there is a coming to awareness on some sections of the left about the problem of this new politics. So if you look, for example, at the turfs that we have here in the UK, we're often referred to as turf island because we have lots of trans critical, gender critical uh, feminists. Um, a lot of them come from the traditional left. They are people who cut their teeth in uh, politics in the 70s and the 80s on the feminist left and the anti-racist left. And they are looking at some of this new stuff and thinking, this is regressive politics. This is censorious. It's misogynistic. It's really problematic. And I think there is a coming to awareness among sections of the left in the US as well Um the, you know, Susan Nyman's new book, for example, which is called uh, The Left Is Not Woke. Um, I had her on my podcast a couple of, a few weeks ago. She makes a very interesting case, which, and I know lots of left-wing friends of mine who completely agree with it, that, that wokeness is not what the left was about for the whole of its existence until quite recently. Is there, is there a similar dynamic in Canada? Is there any ripples of that? Or is the pushback against the things that you and I are worried about? Is it coming just from conservatives, just from Muslim parents, or is there a broader constituency? No, there is a broader constituency. I I, I must say that um, I've, you know, I've been a small C conservative, uh, you know, 
practically my whole life. Um, and um, these same people that, you know, were essentially agreeing on all of these things, we probably would not have agreed on many things 10 years ago. Uh, but that's changed. <laughs> and it's it's fascinating to see that. Um, and these are people who were on the left. I think they still consider themselves to be on the left, but the sensible left, not this crazy, radical, progressive um, uh, nonsense that uh, that we're seeing today. Um, and so that gives me a lot of hope. But I don't know what that means. Ultimately, you know, I, I just don't know how big that is. Um, because I'll just let's take gender ideology as an example. Uh, you've have you have countries like Sweden, which um, was the first country to uh, to to provide uh, transgender care. I think back in the seventies, um, they 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 put a stop on things like puberty blockers. Uh, and you have countries like Norway, Sweden, the UK, uh, a range of different countries that have actually their the medical community is examined this issue they've um, and then they've, they've decided look I think I think we should just put put a stop to this right now or at least keep these things at, at, at a research or at a trial level you know and I and I and I think we've gone too far with this that's been the conclusion over the last few months here in Canada we've had nothing like that from the medical community uh, in fact, not a, not not a single word, um, and uh, the Conservative Party has also uh, not you know weighed in on the gender ideology debate. They've just uh, stayed away from it. When in fact, I think it's one of the most important um, parts of the culture war. And uh, and if you're seen as remaining silent, uh, and I think it's it's an e I, I I think politically I think it's, it's something where they could. They, it, this is a winning issue for them as far as I'm concerned. But again, cultural political correctness or just maybe cowardice, you, you, whatever it is that's going on here in Canada, uh, we're not seeing that kind of, um, um, you know, uh, opposition to this stuff. We're not seeing uh, the medical community uh, talking about saying, you know, I think we should pause puberty blockers. Uh, we're not, we're not, we're not uh, seeing that. And so, um, so yes, I mean it's it's good to see that uh, the traditional left, you know, and I would not have seen eye eye to eye uh, with them on so many different things. We're all basically agreeing on the same thing right now. That's heartening, but uh, I think eventually change is going to happen. Ha- has to happen politically. Um, as long as you have um, the the government, um, and this is not just the liberal government, it's not just the Justin Trudeau government, it's also the conservative governments in this country, uh, the provincial uh, governments, haven't taken a position on this. They've just looked the other way. Uh, when it comes to important um, important issues like gender ideology, uh, uh, and or or like DEI for that matter, uh, the Conservative government of Ontario, in fact, has hired this institute uh, for uh, for their DEI training sessions. So. Where exactly is the resistance coming from? So you have people standing up against this. You have Muslim Canadians saying enough is enough. But I don't know how that's going to, uh, uh, you know, translate politically, because that's for me, that's where change is eventually going to have to come about. As long as you have governments pouring money into these things, that's where they make their money. These these, uh, you know, uh, the uh, the likes of Kojo Institute. And w- once that, you know, that dries up, where are they going to go? Rupa, thank you very much. Thanks, Brendan.
thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.